www.brfcs.com. By the fans. For the fans. Since 1986. Welcome to BRFCS podcast number 60. I'm Wen Waihu, the BRFCS editor. Joining me in the virtual studio today are Chief Reporter Cami and News Editor Paul. It's been quite a while since the last podcast, and in the meantime, uh, we've gone down into the relegation zone. We've had two good home victories against Derby and Huddersfield and kept clean sheets, but today saw us hovering just above the relegation zone with a 4-0 defeat away to Watford. Today we're going to be talking about the games, and then we'll look at the -the off-the-pitch matters uh, that are continuing to blight the club down at Ewood. First of all, I'd like to bring in Cammy. How are you this evening? I'm all right. How are you, Ben? I assume it's early morning in Japan? Yes, yes. Uh, probably noticed by my voice. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, you've uh, been well this last few weeks? Yeah, I've been uh, I'm very, very busy with work. Um, um, that's the reason why we've not really had any podcasts. Uh, I know you've been busy as well, so it's a uh, good good to be doing a podcast after quite a while. That's right, yeah. And uh, Paul's with us today. Um, how are you this evening? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, when and yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, as Kami says, just been ridiculously busy at uh, that time of year here in Japan. Uh, beginning of the school year, beginning of the academic year, and beginning of the business year, uh, 1st of April, so it's been all go. You've been uh, rather busy with the trust activities, I understand. Uh, yes, we've had a lot going on of late, um, uh, which I'm you know, sure we can talk about uh, in a bit more detail later on. Uh, I went to watch Chorley today. That was, uh, that was quite a fun afternoon and uh, plenty of action down there, certainly. Yeah. Was the off-the-pitch action as good as the on-the-pitch action? <laughs> well, there was off-the-pitch action in the tunnel after the game. I mean... It was quite an afternoon. Um, the end result was one all. Uh, there was a dodgy penalty given, which was subsequently missed. Um, there was a mass brawl in the middle of the pitch, which ended up with two of the opposition players being sent off and one Chorley player being sent off. And then as the teams left the pitch, one of the Curzon Ashton coaching staff started to have a go at one of the Chorley players. And everybody was sort of wrestled their way down the tunnel. And then a brawl broke out at the bottom of the tunnel. So, you know, surely was the place to be. Great stuff. Brilliant. Dear, dear. So it's uh, yeah, a bit like uh, the boardroom at uh, the Rovers, by the sound of things. <laughs> oh, easily. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the shenanigans uh, in the boardroom. And uh, then we'll also talk about the, the trust uh, latest developments. But first of all, we'll, we'll talk about the football. Uh, since the last podcast, uh, we've uh, uh, played Blackpool and Cardiff uh, and then uh, defeat away to Sheffield Wednesday. A couple of back-to-back wins, uh, home to Derby and Huddersfield, and then uh, today's rather poor performance away to Watford. Uh, we'll start off uh, by just looking at the... Uh, the two back-to-back wins over Derby and Huddersfield uh, uh, the past weekend. Um, you both went along to uh, the games at uh, Ewood. 
Um, just start off uh, with the Derby match. What did you make of the 2-0 victory over Derby, Cami? Yeah, it was um, very, very comfortable. Um, Derby looked like a team that were already on the beach, I think. Their minds were on the beach. Uh, Rovers were well up for it. Um, it was. Um, I think we, we were a bit nervous first 10 minutes, I think. Uh, but after that, we took control um, of the first half. Um, um, you know, got got one nil up, um, and then right on half time, Scott Dan um, got the second. Uh, so we two nil up at half time, and second half um, we were relatively comfortable. We did drop deep, which is a habit we we seem to have when we're winning games. But uh, we caught with whatever Derby had to offer quite comfortably, um, and it was. Um, a relatively easy 2-0 victory and you know, we've not had many easy games at Ewood Park but th- this was one where um, you know we were motivated, committed and uh, to be fair Derby weren't and they were fairly poor side um, although I think in the last 10 minutes uh, Derby had a, a stonewall penalty as far as I could see um, um, not given but you know um, other than that, um, it was um, a pretty uh, straightforward win for Rovers, and we've not had many of them at Ewood. Mm. Yeah, and uh, it came on the back of uh, a, a fairly poor performance at Sheffield Wednesday, um, from uh, all accounts. Uh, <clears throat> we could have got uh, a point, uh, but 12 minutes from the end, uh, we, we conceded a third goal. Um, Paul, you were at the Derby match, what did you make of it? Um, well, I thought it was a bit of a non-event, to be quite honest, uh, when I um, I thought, like Cammy has already said, that you know Derby appeared to be on holiday already. Um, I didn't feel that there was a significant improvement in the Rovers' performance. I think it's just that because Derby offered relatively little opposition, we were, we were just comfortable through the whole, whole game. Um, I mean, I am struggling to really remember very much about it at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was really a very average performance, and but I was relieved that we got two, uh, two goals and three points from it because they, they were desperately needed. Yeah. Um, what about the uh, crowd? Was there a decent crowd on? I, I know the official figures, but uh, you can't really uh, go by official figures these days. Um, did it look as though we had 13,000 on? No, I mean, when you're assessing the crowd at Ewood these days, really what you have to do is keep in mind the fact that the ground holds 30,000. And then you have to say to yourself, is this nearly half full? And normally the answer is no. And then you look and think, well, is it a third full? And the answer is usually yes, probably around about a third. So I would say the crowds are... Ten to eleven thousand at the very most. Uh, particularly as Derby didn't bring a huge amount of fans, um, so um, you know I, I totally agree with Paul. I think ten, eleven thousand tops. Mm, yeah. Now uh, on the pitch, uh, John Rhodes uh, scored yet again uh, a penalty this time, and uh, then Scott Dan uh, put one in uh, a header just on, on the stroke of half-time. Um, what, uh, what about Jordan Rhodes' performance overall? Uh, he scored a penalty, 
also scored against Huddersfield. A um, lot of discussion as to uh, whether he'll be off in the summer, uh, whether we go down or stay up. Uh, what was his uh, performance like against Derby? It was a, a typical Jordan Rhodes performance in terms of uh, his movement's excellent. He does work hard. Um, sometimes his link, link-up play isn't the best, but you know he's a, an out-and-out goal scorer. So if you get him into goal-scoring opportunities and give him good service, then he's li- liable to almost you know well hit the target and normally when he hits the target it's it's a goal so you know he, i think some fans were saying well well you know he doesn't make goals for himself or his all-round game isn't you know at the level that say uh an alan shearer was but you know he's, he's a completely different player uh for me he's um a gary lineker stroke in a rush type of player uh in terms of he doesn't have blistering pace but what he does have is this ability to get into very dangerous positions and uh, particularly in the 18-yard box. And if you give him good service, then he's going to score goals for you. Um, I feel very, very sorry for him because I you know, personally think we've not played to his strengths for, for most of the season. And the service that he's, he's had up front has been abysmal for, for most most of that time. Um, you're amazed that he's got, you know, I think he's got 25 goals. Absolutely amazed he's got that many goals, uh, considering the lack of service he's had. Um, you know, and you know he's played under what six or seven managers. You know, that that won't help. Um, so I'm amazed he's got. Um, I'm grateful that he's got the goals that he has because without them we'd probably, uh, well, we would be relegated um, already be relegated. So. You know, um, amazed that he's got that many goals. Um, you know, particularly given the service that he's had, and can see uh, him moving on this summer. Um, I, you know, there's the clubs that are going up. You know, Cardiff, uh, possibly Hull. Um, you know, and then one of the playoff teams. Um, I think maybe one of them will come in for him. Uh, and and you know, I, I, you know, he's a and. Um, Ambitious young man, and I'm sure he wants to test himself at uh, you know Premier League level, and you know the circus that's been going on at Ewood Park. Um, I don't think he'd be too keen to stay on at Rovers because you know we we're, we're battling for survival, and if we did get survival this year, if this circus continues over the summer, then um, we're not likely to be in a position to be challenging for promotion next year. So. I think uh, one of the promoted clubs will come in for him. Um, I've heard Sam's also interested so uh, at West Ham, so um, I, I think he may well be in the Premiership next year. Yeah, uh, He uh, scored against Huddersfield as well. Um, now, uh, the game against Huddersfield was decided by the single goal. Uh, what did uh, you both make of that performance, uh, Paul? I really enjoyed the Huddersfield game. Uh, I, I thought it was an excellent game of football. Um, I thought, given the, the, the circumstances, given the pressures, I thought both teams played very well. Um, you know, we might have expected a, a very dour battle with both sides nervous and not wanting to give anything away. But in actual fact, we had a very open and flowing game in which um, both sides, you know, played football and the ball was on the ground virtually the whole match 
Uh, I mean, you know, there's no doubt Jordan Rhodes won that game for us because he just created the goal out of out of nothing, and um, it's a testimony to his his talents and his abilities. And really underlines why Cammy was so right in what he was saying before is that you know Jordan Rhodes will be playing in the Premier League next season. What, what have you made out of him, Paul, um, in the games that you've seen? Well, he's he's probably the best striker we've had down at Ewood for for many a year, really, since probably since Shearer. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that he can score so many goals in a team that is performing so poorly. I hate to think how many he could have got if the team was set up to uh, to play to his strengths. You know, we might well be looking at a footballer who'd scored 33, 34, 35 goals this season. Um, and that's one of the real shames, isn't it? Because if you've got a striking talent like that and you don't set the team up properly, um, you take away a lot of your possibilities of looking to get into, say, the top six. I agree. I mean, when you have a striker on 25-plus goals, you should be looking at uh, at least the top six place. And, and you know, <laughs> uh, it just shows how poor the rest of the team has been, that we've got someone with 25-plus goals and and we're fight, fighting relegation. Um, if you look right. at the team at the bottom of the table, I'd, I'd be surprised if any of their strikers have got even 15 goals. So we've got a 25-plus uh, man in our team and and we're still fighting relegation it's crazy it, well it is crazy and I mean one of the things that was going through my mind while you were speaking there Cammy is I mean I can't think of another player who's scored on a regular basis in the team I mean I really am struggling to think of anybody who might have got say three or four goals this season can you think of anyone Scott Dunn <laughs> Scott Dunn yes that, that's it really um, you know, uh, the rest of the goals have been very few and far between. But Scott Dunn's, I think, our next most regular uh, scorer. Absolutely crazy. But I agree. Huddersfield game was was uh, had a real good tempo, and like both teams got the ball down, uh, played a bit of football, and considering it was a relegation battle, that came as a surprise. And I thought for around about twenty minutes in the first half, between twenty and sort of forty minutes. Uh, the, some of the football that Rovers Rovers played was was you know up there with with you know one of our best performances. Uh, we moved the ball forward, good movement, constantly pressurised Huddersfield, uh, and then they made mistakes. And and you know that first half twenty odd minutes was where we poured forward as well was you know probably one of our our best performances. Um, second half um, again it was end-to-end stuff-ish um, and you know we, we somehow managed to, to hold on and, and get a vital one that we Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I think it's probably the best performance I've seen at Ewood this season. Yeah, it's up there. Uh, the only other performance I can think of which was as good was the Nottingham Forest game. I think we won 3-0 um, and, um, you know, I think Gary Boyer was in charge of that in that match as well and that was a, a, was up there you know where we had a really really good second half we dominated and, and we won 3-0 but other than that I can't think of any other performance uh, where we've where we've uh, played as well no, I, th- I, th- I think you're right and it's interesting that you know both those performances came under Gary Boyer because um, 
I understand that Leon Best was saying earlier in the week that one of the great things is now that the players don't have to worry about the politics in the club, that under, under Boyer they can just get on with playing football and they really enjoy that. Yeah, um, and you know, that, the, the thing that brought Berg down, from what I understand, it was the politics that were going on behind the scenes and you know he wasn't able to bring his own stuff in and you know eventually that filtered on to the players and and they saw what was going on and and then things started to 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 nosedive and then with Appleton uh, you know there was a power struggle going on between uh, Shaw Agnew and and um, uh, Shebby Singh um, and you know, while he had his own team there and, you know, the results weren't, weren't great. But again, I think players were hearing stuff that was going on and maybe that affected their performances. It's mm-hmm. ironic that uh, Leon Best should be saying that uh, and uh, now he's not going to be playing for the rest of the season. He's uh, got himself sent off, a uh, three-match ban. Um, and uh, it was what, right at the end of the game, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, it was in injury time. Uh, he headbutted someone basically, and he, he had to go. Um, I think, I think the thing with Leon Best is he's uber frustrated. Uh, I don't think he's anywhere near fit, and I think this injury that he's had the crucial ligament, um, I think, has affected him psychologically. There were a couple of times against Huddersfield where some challenges were in. They weren't really robust, but. Uh, they went in on him and you could see when he got up he was feeling his knee there was nothing wrong with his knee but it was a psychological thing that when these challenges went in he was getting up and you could see he was still a bit worried by his knee uh, he's getting so much criticism uh, from you know a lot of lot of fans and I can understand you know his performances haven't been great but you've got to remember this guy was um, out injured for what seven months eight months and he's come back in, uh, he's had one, I think, one reserve game, and he's been thrown back into a relegation battle. Um, he's not fully fit, and, um, you know, it's, you know, a football, it's not a button that you can just press and you'll be brilliant. Uh, he's, you know, he needs to build his fitness up, he needs to build his confidence up, um, you know, and, and, you know, he's not the type of player that can just come in and, and have a major impact. So, you know, I can understand why fans are disappointed, but um, I, I'm not going to judge him this year. I think he needs a full pre-season and the time to judge him will be next year. Um, but yeah, now he's been sent off. Uh, that's him done for, for the rest of the season and hopefully uh, he can use the summer to, to get fit again, get over any psychological issues that he seems to be having and have a, a proper pre-season next year and, and we'll, we may see the, the proper Guillaume Best next next season. Yeah. Now that came right at the end of the game. Uh, we're already 4-0 down at the time. Um, another uh, returnee to the side, uh, Gail Givet, uh, he came back for the Huddersfield match with uh, Grant Hanley uh, out because of uh, the 10 bookings rule, I think it was. And uh, Gail Givet is uh, slotted straight back in with a, an excellent uh, warrior-like performance against Huddersfield, I understand. Uh, but today against uh, Watford, uh, he seemed to have been uh, at fault for the first goal from what I can understand. Yeah, um, first off, 
Um, I thought we were the better side. Uh, Watford had a little bit of pressure, uh, which we dealt with very, very easily. And we had a couple of chances. Dunn had a shot. Uh, Jordan Rhodes had a turn and shot. Uh, there were a couple of times where we got into dangerous positions and our final ball let us down. But uh, we were fairly comfortable in the first half. Um, and and really, we may you know we could have gone in at half time one nil. Um, second half, we came out. Um, you know, it wasn't the intensity as like we had against Huddersfield. Um, and obviously, Watford uh, had a boost um, last night with with Hull uh, failing to beat Bristol City um, at home. So you know they're back in. They knew if they won they'd be back in with a shout of possible automatic promotion. Second half, um, you know, they came out, um, they were right onto the front foot. Uh, we had a, a scramble just before they scored. Uh, you know, uh, Troy Dealey um, got the first goal. I don't think GV was particularly at fault. I think it was just a combination of factors uh, with the midfield maybe not tracking and then the defence being a little bit exposed. And uh, he turned GV, but you know, I wouldn't say he was totally at fault for that. And and he, he put, you know, they went one nil up. Uh, the second goal came. GV was injured, and I think Rovers were trying to make a substitution, but um, just couldn't get it done. GV was still on the pitch, uh, and I think due to his injury, uh, you know, he wasn't. Uh, our defence lost a bit of shape, and and they went two nil up. Um, Kareem Rekic came on, but as soon as we went 2 0 down, the heads dropped, and um, you know Watford were pouring forward by that stage. Um, our players looked maybe a little bit tired. Um, you know, no, no excuse really. The, the heads dropped, and um, you know they got the third and the fourth goal. Uh, uh, Troy Dealey nearly got a hat trick. In fact, you know they could have been five or six uh, nil up, and, um, and then right. In injury time, there was a bit of a scuffle, and um, Leon Best um, got himself sent off, and uh, you know it it capped a miserable afternoon for Rovers. To be honest, um, I d- to be honest, I didn't think we'd get anything at Watford, um, but what has happened that four uh, nil defeat has uh, almost wiped out our uh, goal difference advantage that we had. So now um, we're on minus eight, um, Peterborough on minus nine, and uh, Wolves are on minus eleven. So that huge, uh, you know, gap of uh, goal difference that we had, which was almost worth a point, uh, has been wiped out now, and and that's very very disappointing. Uh, the defeat is disappointing, but the double blow is the goal difference that. Uh, a lot of us were thinking would be worth an extra point has almost been wiped out now. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to play a very big part. Uh, minus four before the game, and uh, we were looking pretty good to stay up on goal difference if it came to that. But uh, now there's a couple of teams that can can catch us uh, goal difference wise. Yeah, we've uh, we've got Watford uh, out of the way now, and uh, Millwall to come in a couple of days. I mean, the other, we're very, very thankful today that uh, Wolves lost um, to Charlton, uh, Peterborough lost to Derby, um, and Barnsley only drew with, with Nottingham Forest. So there wasn't much damage done in terms of um, 
um, teams catching up on points. Uh, it could have been a lot worse at one point. Um, I think going into the last few minutes, uh, Wolves were drawing and uh, were pushing for maybe even winning that game and, and then we would have been in real trouble. So at the moment, we're, we were at where we are as you were really. Um, we're two points ahead of Wolves and Peterborough and we've still got that slight goal difference advantage. Uh, so the way I see it is Tuesday, the Millwall game, I've been saying on Twitter, it's a free hit. Um, you know, Points-wise, our position can't get any worse on Tuesday. So anything that we get is a bonus. And I think um, one win, so three points uh, from you know from either Millwall or Crystal Palace will almost put us safe because if we win, that'll put us, you know, what, five points clear of, of uh, Wolves and Peterborough. So that would mean them to having to win both the games uh, to, to get past us. Um, they've both got a home game next week and then uh, away game the final day of the season. So I think we're po- possibly three points away from um, from almost guaranteeing, well, from survival, I think. Um, and, you know, Millwall represents, like I said before, a, a kind of free hit uh, because it's our game in hand. Um, if we, whatever we get is going to, only improve our position in terms of points um, and if we end up losing then we'll still be two points clear of uh, relegation zone um, so we might as well be positive and go for it because um, uh, Millwall are in the best of form uh, they lost 3-0 to Huddersfield today so you know it represents an op- opportunity to um, take a, a lot of pressure off ourselves if we can win that game um, uh, going into the Crystal Palace game. Yeah. Back in March, uh, when we did the last podcast, uh, I thought 54 points, maximum 55, would have seen us safe. And uh, I, I didn't see any problem in us getting getting those. But uh, it's been a, an amazing uh, end to the season down at the bottom with uh, everyone picking up wins here and there. And uh, it could be that 54, 55 points isn't enough. Um, interestingly, Burnley, who managed to pick up a, a point uh, against Cardiff uh, at home with a, a last-minute last uh, equaliser, uh, they're on 55 points. They're still not out of it, are they? Uh, they've got Wolves away, which uh, is going to be a, a, a relegation six-pointer. Um, if they lose that, then uh, it's quite possible that uh, they could be dragged into it. Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy league. If we win, for example, I know we've lost six on the bounce away from home, but if we do manage to beat Millwall, we'll be 15th in the league. Um, you know, it's that that tight down there. Um, but if we can pick up uh, three points, that'll be superb. Even a draw, you know, it takes us three points clear and still with a, a slight goal different uh, advantage over um, Wolves and and Peterborough, um, so um, you know I'm hoping that the players are positive and they they see it as an op- a really good opportunity to uh, put some real daylight between us and and relegation rivals. What do you make of it, Paul? Um, well, I think you summed the situation up very well. Um, it's... 
I, I've, I have a feeling we might end up needing to get four points. I think we might end up having to go to Birmingham to get a result, to be honest, um, which I hope isn't the case. Uh, but I think it might well go down to that last match of the season. But as you say, when you, I mean, I've got the table here in front of me, and I mean, two wins puts us on 59 points and in 11th place. It would be absolutely crackers, wouldn't it? It just it goes to show how, the, the very thin margin in this division between success and failure. Because, I mean, when you look at Bolton, they're on 66 points. Rovers down the bottom at 53 over a season, that's only four or five wins. It, it's it's not a huge difference, is it? No. I mean, just if you take the, I think, four games where we've conceded goals in the last minute, where wins have turned into draws, just those four games alone, you know, those eight points that we've dropped, you know, you get those eight points and you're suddenly looking at playoff position. It's it's a absolutely crazy league um, and it's very, very tight. You know, there isn't much, like you said, uh, Paul. It's the margins are so, so thin in this league. It's, it's quite unbelievable. Which you know that takes us back, if you like, perhaps to Jordan Rhodes, because in a league where the margins are so thin, if you've got a player like that who can score goals for fun, why on earth isn't you know haven't we got a team and a squad that's set up to take advantage of it? Um, because if we had, and if we had managed to be defensively tighter in some of the games that you've mentioned there, then I, I feel that you know we really could have done extremely well this season. And it just, it's just madness, absolute madness that we we are in the position that we are. Yeah, I mean it goes back to I think we were all saying um, that, and we've had all inexperienced managers this year. You know, Keane, um, Berg, Black. Appleton, now Boyer, who's doing a fantastic job, but you know he's got no experience of this kind of situation. If we had had, um, I don't know, a Mick McCarthy, um, a Billy Davis, you know, who knows this division, who know how to set up a team, I think one of them experienced guys would have made sure that we set the team up to our major strength, which is you know a natural goal scorer like Jordan Rhodes, and they would have done it, set it up in a way that we maximise uh, Jordan's potential. And, um, you know, uh, Mick McCarthy would have, I think, would he, he did it with uh, Fletcher at Wolves, you know. But Fletcher's a similar kind of player to Jordan. He's a bit more physical, but, you know, he's an out-and-out goal scorer. And, you know, he, he did it there. And I'm sure someone like McCarthy would have uh, set the team up to uh, maximise Jordan's strength and, and, you know, make us uh, hard to beat. Um, in terms of defensively and uh, I, I, I fully expected someone like him to get us into a, a top six position. You know, there's certain managers like Bruce and Mick McCarthy who know how to get teams out of this division and, and unfortunately the clowns uh, running things at Ewood um, haven't been able to see that. Uh, and when you look at the table with Crystal Palace and Bolton lying fifth and sixth, respectively, both who changed their managers around about the same time as we did and, you know, made good, sensible, positive choices, um, they've uh, reaped the benefit, you know. I mean, you know, either one of those teams could uh, could be looking to go up and, and it's all down to the, the change in management. Yeah, I mean, 
they made the changes about the same time we did, you know, with, with Friedman going to Bolton and then Crystal Palace having to get a replacement in. It was round about the same time. They got people. Uh, Friedman was proven in this division. You know, he was inexperienced, but he'd proven with Crystal Palace over the last two years that um, he, he'd taken a team who were in a relegation battle uh, into playoff contenders. And uh, Holloway... Despite his faults, you know he's a again a, a guy who's proven in this division by you know uh, taking Blackpool up and uh, when he left Blackpool were in the top eight, you know so he'd, he'd done the business for them. Uh, they've got experienced managers uh, at this level and and you know the the table doesn't lie. You know they're both in playoff positions and we're at the bottom because we got people who were, weren't proven at this level and. You know, whoever took those gambles, they're, they're definitely not paid off. No, I don't think there's any doubt about that. They haven't paid off. And I suppose the worry now has to be, you know, where are we going to find a manager who's experienced enough to get us out of the division and who's actually prepared to come to the club? Yeah, um, Rover's reputation is is dirt within the game, uh, particularly in the UK. You know, I, I can't see a decent manager uh, wanting to take on the Rovers job uh, knowing the circus that's going on off off the pitch. You know, uh, Owen Coyle uh, was on the radio earlier this week and he was saying something similar, that it's a fantastic club, but uh, it's not manageable at the moment because of all the issues off the pitch. And I know all the managers know about what's going on at Rovers. So, you know, it'd be very, very difficult to attract a good manager with experience uh, in this country. You might be able to get a foreign manager, but then, you know, again, you, it's, it's the unknown uh, with someone not having managed at this level. Now, as you're saying, off the pitch, uh, uh, the usual uh, shenanigans were going on. Um, while we were performing on the pitch against Huddersfield on Tuesday, uh, Rovers were in the High Court. Uh, that was for the uh, claim by Henning Berg. Uh, for monies due to him. Uh, Rovers were ordered to lodge £843,000 uh, with the bank while the proceedings uh, are still going on and until the decision is made. Uh, in the meantime, we've also had um, uh, the, the usual uh, nonsense with a, a visit to Pune. Uh, we had reports that uh, Shaw, Shaw and Agnew combination and also Gary Boyer were summoned to Pune uh, and then um, Paul Agnew states in the press uh, that uh, it was not at uh, the behest of uh, Mr Desai but um, that he proposed that uh, they go over and also he proposed directly to Gary Boyer that he, he go over uh, this was uh, ahead of the crucial match against Derby and uh, of course in the end uh, we we did very well against Derby and so uh, Gary Boyer was uh, gracefully able to uh, push that to 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 one side but uh, at the time taking uh, taking time off from uh, looking after your squad to uh, go over to Pune doesn't seem like the best idea. Cammy, what, what have you heard uh, in the background about the High Court case? Yeah, it's beyond bonkers. This what's gone on 
uh, with this court case. I never expected it to go to court. I thought they'd come to an, uh, they would eventually come to an out of court settlement because, you know, it's clear that whatever's happened, Berg's got a contract that um, gives him, uh, you know, a, a set compensation figure of, of you know, round about two million pounds, one point seven, one point eight million pounds. So, you know, whoever signed it or whatever's gone on, you know, that that's by the by. That's nothing to do with Berg and nothing to do with the legal system. If he's got a contract, whether you know the um, the board of directors are appointed by Venki, so they have the authority to to sign these contracts and whatever's gone on, which we'll discuss later, that's nothing to do with Henningberg and nothing really to do with the legal process. Um, so I went to court on, on Tuesday. Even on Tuesday, I thought uh, right at the last minute, Rovers would possibly come to an out-of-court settlement. And it looks like the night before, some kind of agreement was made. And then on the court, you know, on, on Tuesday, Rovers decided... You know, Rowe's legal team said, no, we're not honouring that. And they were absolutely uh, pillared by Mark Pilling, who was the judge. He said uh, that the club's conduct was utterly unforgivable. How has this situation been allowed to happen? Um, the application notice is woefully inadequate and not accompanied by any evidence this is utterly contrary to the way justice is supposed to be served. It is guaranteed to be a waste of time and money. So basically, the judge is telling them that they haven't got any evidence. They've got not a leg to stand on. And they're wasting not only their own money, but also they're wasting the time of the judge. Um, so he absolutely pillared them. And, you know, he also said, you're contradicting yourself because uh, you know, Rovers said that the lawyers were saying Derek Shaw didn't have the authority to change whatever contract uh, Mrs Desai had agreed to. But, you know, he said, you know, Pilling said that your own website released a statement, uh, which is still on the Rovers website, from the owners sporting Derek Shaw. So, you know, it it was it, you've, it, I'm just flabbergasted at the incompetent fools running not only our our club but the legal people that they've got. It was utterly embarrassing to to hear those court proceedings and uh, the excuses that they tried to make and how they contradicted themselves. So you know, quite rightly, the the judge said you can go away. You can come back um, a week on Friday and I'll, I'll do another hearing. But I think he's already told them they've got no chance of actually winning this case. Um, and he was very close to just dismissing it outright. But he's allowed to them to go away and, and you know, submit whatever they're going to do. But they have little or no chance of actually winning it. And... I don't think he trusts Venkis and I don't think he trusts Rovers. That's why he made them deposit £844,000 in, um, you know, in a bank um, because you know, I, I don't think there's some trust there because of the way they behaved uh, after agreeing to um, 
an out-of-court settlement on Monday night only to change their minds on Tuesday. It's just embarrassing, absolutely embarrassing. And the uh, the letters uh, that have been uh, exchanged be- allegedly between uh, uh, Mrs Desai and uh, uh, the the people down at Ewood, uh, Derek Shoy and Sylvester, um, they've been posted onto the internet. Uh, the BRFC Action Group have put them up on their website. Uh, these have been posted around uh, uh, national media outlets. Uh, Daily Mail have uh, have also. Um, published uh, some parts of the email, I believe. Um, it's, it's quite astonishing uh, the, the way this has all come out uh, in, into the public uh, view. Uh, the letters themselves are pretty amazing. Um, I know that uh, some people uh, doubt their um, legitimacy, but uh, I've, I've read through them and... Uh, I, I can well imagine that this is uh, Mrs. Desai's own hand, despite the uh, uh, the poor poor English that uh, many people point to. Uh, the headers of those emails have been uh, altered, uh, and uh, I, I think that's quite clear that they're they're not uh, uh, they're not the original headers. Uh, but if you look past that, then uh, uh, I think that the the actual text uh, looks looks to me uh, pretty convincing. Um, Paul, you you weren't uh, you weren't sure about uh, about the legitimacy of the uh, of these two um, letters that were posted up on the internet. Uh, what what do you feel now? Well, I've changed my mind a hundred percent when. Um uh, originally, when I read them, um, it was the, the the language use that that made me wonder because uh, I don't I don't know what the education system is like in India, but I had rather imagined that you know the family with the the, the background that the Rao family would have um, would mean that they you know had a fairly high a high level of education and uh, and these letters are written in what i would describe as indian english and i rather thought they might have used something that was closer to european english or had been educated with, with european english um but so that that was what made me question it in the first place um i suppose the thing that really convinced me is the fact that uh, you know glenn mullen and mark fish have both said publicly well we're going to stand up to any uh, lawyers or solicitors who contact us because we absolutely believe these are genuine and I think we have to take the guys at their word that they're you know absolutely certain because you wouldn't announce publicly that you're going to take on a lawyer um, unless you knew you could win. Yeah and the, the other giveaway is the action group I think Glenn's put this publicly uh, the lawyers aren't aren't going after them because of the authenticity of the letters, what they're going after them is the confidentiality. You know, I, th- I think he posted Glenn and Mark posted something on 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 the on our message board regarding confidentiality. So uh, these letters have been doing the rounds for about two weeks. Um, I saw them about a week and a half ago. Um, a number of journalists had them, and uh, quite a few of them used them as the basis for um, doing a couple of articles. Um, so they've been doing the round for a couple of weeks. Um, having seen other communications from the owners, 
and having had some direct communications with 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 the owners, this the English in this uh, these emails stroke letters is par for the course for, for the owners. In fact, it's probably better than than, than usual. Um, so uh, you know, I wouldn't read too much into the language side of things because uh, this is the kind of standard. Usually, it's a lot worse than this. This was quite good standard uh, compared to some of the other stuff I've seen. So, so yeah, I have no reason to to doubt the authenticity of these. And the newspapers who did, although didn't publish the letters, but published stories, um, um, you know, with these letters up as sources, again, they all believe them to be true, so have no reason to doubt their authenticity. Uh, what do you make about the letter, when and Paul, the actual content? Um, well, there's, there's two things, really. I mean, I, I, I struggle to see how anybody's going to uh, go after uh, Glenn and Mark on a confidentiality basis, because there's you know nothing to suggest on what we've seen published, that these are confidential documents. They're documents that have been leaked out. Um, what do I think about the contents? Um, I suppose it's not really a surprise, is it? I think most of it probably people had put together by you know adding two and two and making four. Um, and I think the, the content really confirms what we have all known for a long time, that the, the whole management at Rovers is, is just in chaos and these letters show that it's in chaos from the top all the way down. Yeah, I mean, the, the startling thing here is, um, you know, what the hell is going on when you're getting a contract being changed from what the owners had agreed to? You're getting statements put on the website that haven't been cleared by the owners. Uh, you know, it's completely out of control. The executive structure, although they have some autonomy, they seem to be doing stuff without the permission of the owners and releasing statements, uh, you know, like this Derek Shaw statement, which, um, you know, backed him and said that, you know, the, the, the backing for him regarding this, this Berg incident, but then they go to court and say, well, no, this is... They say the opposite. So, like you said, complete and utter chaos. And, you know, just reading these letters and, and the contents of them, it, you know, he, Derek and even Ian Sylvester have made a massive mistake here. They've gone against the wishes of the owners. They're going to cost them possibly a million and a half pounds more than they, that they were willing to pay. And yet, neither have been sacked. And they went to India and they came back and seemed to have regained some control. So, unfortunately, it brings the question again, you know, in my mind, um, are there more owners? You know, are Venkis the only owners or are there other outside influences still at large? Because on the face of it, Derek Shaw should be sacked by now because of this massive mistake he's made in terms of, going against the wishes of the owners and your your Mrs. Desai in this letter is almost accusing him of cheating them out of money. You know, she uses the word cheating so and says you failed in your duty. Um, 
very very strong words, and you know she says it's a serious issue. Yet, uh, you know, Derek Shaw continues to be employed. Yeah, there's something in the tone of the letters that says to me that uh, uh, she has absolutely no idea what's going on, uh, that uh, things are being done behind her back, uh, as if the people down at Ewood and behind the scenes at Ewood have got uh, authority that uh, uh, is higher than hers. Um, it's... Uh, Hopefully, all going to come out uh, in in the next uh, few weeks uh, about what what really is going on down at uh, down at Ewood. That that is the whole problem of trying to manage a business like a football club from afar. You have if you don't have good people in the club and give them complete autonomy, you're going to end up with this sort of mess. If you if you try to micromanage, uh, you know, a, a football club from India, um, and then have be expecting the management to be taking responsibilities for certain aspects of running the club, you're going to end up with confusion and chaos and nobody quite knowing what, you know, the other parties are up to. Yeah. We've uh, mentioned in previous uh, podcasts about this, but basically I said uh, last year that the club has been usurped by certain uh, individuals and certain um, interests and uh, I think the next uh, few weeks could be crucial in terms of uh, the inside workings of, uh, of Blackburn Rovers Football Cup coming to light. Well, it'll make for a very interesting summer if they do. Mm, yeah. Uh, with, uh, with regard to uh, these um, behind-the-scenes moves... Uh, Kami, uh, the Pune visit, were, were they summoned to Pune or, as uh, Paul Agnew himself says, uh, did they um, actually request to go over there? I think it was a bit of both. I think Shebby was over there and questions were being asked and, um, you know, I think there were some conference calls and then in the end, think Shaw was going to go out there anyway and then Paul Agnew decided to go with him and then for whatever reason uh, Agnew persuaded uh, uh, Gary Boyer to go out with him so you know so that Gary could have direct chats with with, with, with the owners. Um, Gary's a top bloke and you know I, I've, I've got to know him through the reserves and watching the academy um, uh, teams quite regularly, so uh, you know he's, he's very very honest. So if he says you know he went out there to have a chat with the owners to clarify what was going on and uh, use that time to get information, which will um, you know which he could pass back to the players in terms of some sort of stability until. The end of the season. Well, you know, if he if he says he, that's why he went, then um, you know, I take that on face value because you know he's 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 a very very honest bloke. Um, so so yeah, so you know, but it was very bizarre timing considering we had these massive games against Derby and Huddersfield coming up. Um, but you know, we got the results, so you can't really criticise him for doing that. 
Yeah, and he's uh, he's been very good about uh, making sure that the pressure has been taken off uh, uh, the players uh, by you know saying that uh, his visit to Pune had uh, no bearing at all on on the performances and on the preparation for the the derby match. So uh, it's uh, very honourable of him to, uh, to 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 take that uh, upon himself to uh, to say those uh, things to the press. Um, takes the pressure off off the players. We're able then to get a good result against Huddersfield. But uh, in an ideal world, I'm sure that uh, Gary would prefer to have been down uh, at Brockall, um, uh, looking after the, the the players and preparing them himself, along with uh, Terry McPhillips. I think someone needs to introduce the owners to Skype, because <laughs> it's the way forward. <laughs> dear, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't bear thinking, does it? Unbelievable. Yeah, you know they can have video chats as well on Skype, just in case they don't know. Yeah, dear, oh dear. Yeah, um, th- this links into uh, another um, issue, which is uh, the fact that uh, twenty-four million pounds has, uh, has been uh, converted to shares. I think uh, uh, by Venkis London Limited. And the uh, question is whether this is spending money that uh, is uh, ne- next year's parachute payments. Paul, you've, uh, you've looked at this uh, uh, in some detail. Um, what, what, uh, what's your view on this? Well, I'm, personally, I'm convinced that they've mortgaged next season's parachute payments of 16 million and the following season's payment, uh, which is 8 million. Um, you know, it's just too much of a coincidence that we've twenty-four million pounds worth of parachute payments due over the next two seasons, and all of a sudden, twenty-four million pounds of share capital is issued. Uh, I, I don't have any proof, but the moment that I, I read about this and you know saw the information at Company's House, uh, you know, I instantly put two and two together. I've probably come up with five, but as far as I'm concerned, I've I've hit the target. You know, I, I really think this is what's happened. And I also, I don't know, Cammy, you may know, it, I thought it was only the first season's um, parachute payments that you could mortgage against. But if I'm right, then, they, then, that, then they've you know, done something which they shouldn't again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've checked with the Premier League and to, this, the parachute payments are meant to help the club uh, into a transition period over you know, like four years where... Uh, they're getting income and they can slowly reduce their costs over a number of years so that by the time the parachute payments run out, you your club is in a, a, a healthier state than when it comes down because you know, you've, you've, you've cut your costs and, and you've used those parachute payments uh, in the meantime. Uh, um, so that's what I'm aware of. Um, uh, you can ask for... A proportion, so they had 16 million given to them, and then they got another 16 million due to them next season. Now, in certain circumstances, you can ask for some of that money in advance. So, for example, uh, the rumor I've heard is uh, that they've asked the Premier League for an advance uh, of two million pounds so that they can pay uh, the uh, Henningberg. Uh, compensation uh, 
Um, that I mean, just just a rumour, so it could be completely untrue. But I've heard this from a number of people where they've asked the Premier League for a two million pound advance, so that they can settle up with Berg. So, regardless, you know, I think you you could be right, Paul. I think they have possibly mortgaged them off. But even if the rumour about them asking for advance for to cover the Berg costs, so they can pay him off, even if that's true, then it's pretty, you know, you, it's easy to see that the well has run dry in terms of Venkis putting money in. So if they can't afford to pay Berg off, and if these rumours are true that they've asked Venk, uh, they've asked the Premier League for advance on the parachute payments, then the well has definitely run dry, and you know, I don't think they're going to be putting any more money into the club. And if that happens, then we're in deep trouble because the contracts and stuff that are signed, then you know, you I think they've got to find thirty million pounds in terms of the the players that we've got uh, at the club and the contracts that they're on and the, and the money that they owed. So if that's true, then we're in very deep trouble. This thirty million cameo—that's not a figure I've heard before. This is that for contracts that that the players have or money that is still due to them. Yeah, it came out with. Uh, I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, where one of, I think it was the Daily Mail did an article on um, the six hundred and fifty thousand um, pound um, agents' fees that were paid. For the Portuguese players and the agent fees that were paid um, for Leon Best and Danny Murphy and Dixon or two, I think it was one point something million. It was all part of that story, and in that story, it said that there were thirteen players, uh, and their contracts and bonuses and payments, etc., uh, meant that there was they were in total worth thirty million pounds. So they were. Rovers would have to pay out thirty million pounds in terms of wages, bonuses, whatever incentives. So there's a thirty million pound commitment that we've made to these thirteen players that are on the books. So you know that's some money that we're going to have to find over the next eighteen months or so. Right. Yes, I I was aware of the the article in the mail, but I hadn't read it in as much detail as you obviously have. Um, I mean, it, just in the short term, if uh, rumour is true, we're losing £2 million a month. Well, you know, we have to get through June, July and August. We need £6 million just to get through that. Yeah, you know, and uh, like I said, if these rumours about them asking for an advance on um, the um, um, parachute payments so that they could cover the Berg um, uh, compensation costs if that's true and um, the, the people who've told me have you know I think they, they're quite reliable so if that's true then um, we're in deep trouble because that means like you said the money that we losing two million pounds even if it's a million and a half a month uh, that's going to have to be covered and I assume some of these players who signed new contracts uh, I'm just wondering whether they had some kind of bonuses uh, in there in there um, uh, at the end of the season. They might be due some more payments. We don't know what's been signed off, but if this is true, then 
we could have to find a lot of money over the summer. And if the owners aren't going to be putting it in, then you know, we're, we're in big trouble, I would say. Well, yes, I think I think you're very right. And, um, you know, we may, I hate to say it, but we may start seeing headlines about players and staff not being paid. Yes, the next question is uh, whether this will lead to administration and uh, whether uh, there's any chance of uh, uh, the club being sold. Um, we've, uh, in the last podcast, I think we discussed uh, the possibilities of, uh, uh, of Ian Battersby and Ian Curry uh, coming back on the scene uh, to uh, perhaps take, uh, make a bid for the, for the, for the club. Um, Cammy, do, do you have any news on potential uh, purchasers? I think um, the Seneca bid, so you know, I've talked to the two Ians and they've, you know, last May, so we're talking May 2012, they had investors lined up and were in a position to make a formal bid for the club if, if your bankies talked to them or wanted to sell. Uh, so May 2012, they had people who said, "Yeah, we'd be, you know, willing to uh, buy the club, you know, help you buy this club." And they sold whatever investment model they were looking at. They, you know, sold it to these people, and they were in a position to possibly buy the club from bankies. Now, 12 months down the line, we. The commitments that have been made to you know players, you know the players that have been bought in, the money that you know, like like we said, is thirty odd million and various other commitments. You know, you know, the two Ians will have to go back to those investors and uh, tell them, you know, what the position is, and it may be that you know we're not viable to, for 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 Seneca any longer. So. You know, because it's not Ian, the two Ian's money. They they're working on behalf of the people that they represent. You know, the money that they look after. You know, their wealth man- management company. So, you know, it's not their own money. Um, they they'll be getting investors in. So, they'll now have to go back to those investors. And if Venkis decided to sell, they'd have to look at the books and see whether it was a viable investment or not. Um, so, on the face of it. Um, I can't see how they can sell this to to any potential investor because we're in we've got all these massive financial commitments. Um, we're you know struggling in the championship, um, and um, you know anyone coming in may have to invest up to forty million pounds. You know if, if you know these commitments to players etc. They're not going to go away. Um, so. You know, if, for example, Seneca bought the club, say, tomorrow, they still have to honour these commitments that are being made to the players. And if they are are true, you know, they reported £30 million, then, um, you know, I don't know how they can sell that as an investment model to, to people um, that, you know, that they represent. Um, I mean, Paul, you're involved with a trust. You know, you probably know a bit more about this than I do. What do you make of it? Well, I personally, I don't have any direct contact between, um, you know, with with the two Ians. Um, that tends to be usually Wayne who's uh, who's in touch with them. Um, 
we talk to them on a, on a on a regular basis as i think you know i think it would be fair to say there's a good relationship between the trust and and the two ians who seem to be um you know the only possibility in town at the moment don't they yes um i mean i don't think there's anyone else um with with the kind of possible access to finance that could you know take over the club and you know again i think they want to work from again with my conversation with them i think they've like you said they get on well with Wayne and uh, they believe in the trust concepts so i think they want to work with the trust but it's whether they can in, get the investors uh, to put money in uh, considering um the, the amount of money that rovers you know potentially ought to play etc I, I, i don't know if it's a viable investment any longer for them uh, yes it's hard to see uh, the argument isn't it i mean um it, we're assuming there is an awful lot of debt um and you know venkis when they bought the club bought it for what around about 23 million plus sort of something like 22 23 million pounds worth of debt uh it's hard to see the club having that sort of value now yeah um and like we're saying is where's this debt so if, i know it's it's lodged with the state bank of india so the other thing we have to get is have they secured this against rovers assets so i the parachute payments etc they've already been you know been given away to the state bank of india i don't think that that can happen in terms of that bank because my limited understanding of finance and talking to people in india uh, who who are sort of experts in this area they've been telling me that indian banks won't uh, accept foreign securities so for example you know they borrow a lot of money of state bank of india they'd want uh, bank securities um um from india so venkis india limited assets so those are the securities that they'd be wanting so in that respect if that's true the money they borrowed from state bank of india would have been secured against venki india limited assets which you know, which would mean if the worst happened and there were problems on the face of it um we we the money that they owe to the banks is not um against rovers assets but that still would mean we still have liabilities in terms of the wages etc bonuses so still have to find that money but maybe that debt uh, is secured against the india assets rather than than rovers directly yeah i think um certainly i've i've heard that point of view from other people as well and i i don't know anything about you know indian financial institutions but i can well imagine how they would be concerned on securing uh, loans against asset against assets that are outside of india um if that proves to be the case then i think it's good news for rovers and of course the other thing that might be interesting would be if the parachute payments for the next couple of seasons have been mortgaged um you know if they have been mortgaged outside of the uk i wonder whether that means that they could also still be secure for the cup for the club because it, it, this is the whole problem isn't it that for anybody who comes in uh there's no real money there uh there's there's nothing to use to run the club and so you know a large amount of money is going to have to be found simply to run it for the next 12 months 
Yeah, I mean, like again, if you, say someone bought the club next month, they'd have to inject a lot of money just to run it on a month-to-month basis. And and you know, I I I just can't see how someone's going to find that kind of money. To be honest, uh, to to do it, uh, even even if there was little debt, you know, say say let's just work on an ideal situation, and and the debt's all in India, and it's tied against Venki's India assets, so that that's all all good, and you know, so someone coming in would still need to find a considerable. Um, uh, capital because we're losing two, you know, whatever cost we have, it's still two million pounds a month. So whoever's coming would have to find that kind of money just to run it on a month-to-month basis. And I just don't know where you know, someone's going to get that kind of money uh, to to come in and and um, run the club. Yeah, they come in and maybe sell a Jordan Rhodes for ten, twelve million pounds. You know, that could be a possible way, but you know, it's it's. It's very difficult to, be honest, to see a logical uh, way of someone coming in and, and putting in the kind of money that Rovers need. Well, on the um, subject of uh, money and takeovers, uh, this week Portsmouth Supporters Trust have become the owners of Portsmouth Football Club after, I think it's about 14 months of uh, trying to uh, uh, take over the club. Uh, now, um, Paul, you've been very, very busy in the last few weeks uh, with activities for Rovers Trust. Uh, the Trust has just had uh, uh, nominations for uh, their elections uh, that closed on the 31st of March. There are two nominations for the co-chair, and uh, so uh, uh, Oz Jones and Wayne Wilde are both uh, duly elected uh, to the positions of co-chair and uh, there are seven nominations for the six positions on the committee uh, which means that there will be uh, um, a, a ballot uh, forthcoming. Uh, could you bring us up to date on uh, the details of the elections? Could you tell us who, who's been nominated for example and uh, also let us uh, know what uh, your activities have been of late? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, it's excellent news to have a member put himself forward, uh, Anthony Webster, for the elections. Um, you know, whether Anthony is elected or not remains to be seen, but if he is, then it will be good to have, have new blood coming into the committee. Um, and it's also good that, you know, that some of the membership are beginning to think, yes, I would like to get involved, I would like to try and help. And then we also have from the steering group standing Anthony Corry, Brian Lamb, Jen Bellamy, Dan Grabko, Duncan Miller, and Neil Thornton. Um, I think it's very positive that we actually have to have a ballot. I think it's, you know, it shows that we are an open and we are a democratic society and, um, you know, somebody is, is, is not going to make it. Um, I'm, you know, they're all very good people, uh, so it will be a shame, um, but that's the nature of the process. Uh, and I, th- I think it was really important, actually, for the trust um, as a as a body that we did have uh, a contested election, and that it wasn't just a question of people, you know, getting nominated and then being uh, elected on it because there was no one to challenge them. Um, I, I noticed that your name's not on there. 
Yes, I really wanted to stand when um, my problem is that there are times of the year when my work makes me very, very busy and I almost sort of disappear. I mean, you know, I find myself working six, six and a half days a week um, for maybe 10, 12 or more hours a day. And this next 12 months is going to be absolutely crucial for the trust. And the fact that for the period sort of March to June, I get really busy at work. And then the same again, September and October, plus the fact that I may be out of the UK for four weeks around Christmas actually means that, you know, there could be five or six months of the next 12 when I'm not able to contribute at the level which will be necessary if one is elected to the committee. So, I've, you know, I've had to just say, well, I can't do it on this occasion. You know, maybe there'll be another chance. Now, um, could you just explain to uh, everyone precisely what, what's going to happen from now? Uh, the elections, uh, uh, how, how are they going to take place? There's, um, uh, it's also possible to vote via email, I believe. Are, are the details going to go out soon? Uh, it, but the, the details have been emailed to the membership a week ago now. Uh, there are three ways for people to vote. One is online on the Rovers Trust website. Uh, there was a link sent to every member and it provided they log into the website, they can then follow the link and they will see the candidates' names in front of them and they just you know, simply cast their vote for, for the candidates that, that they want. Um, members are also able to request a paper ballot and those who don't have email uh, have been posted a paper ballot and then the third opportunity to vote will be at an extraordinary general meeting which is being held on the 15th of May at uh, Darwin AFC ground so you know we've we've covered every possibility people can vote online they can vote by a postal ballot and then they will be able to vote in person at the EGM in uh, the middle of May uh the uh, eligibility to vote, uh, is that limited to uh, people who were members as of 31st of March when nominations closed or can people still join now and vote? No, it's, it's, that's limited to people who are members at the 31st of March uh, and they must, they must be fully paid up members and over 18 years of age. Right. Um, you know, I mean, these are, in fact, these are not our rules. Um, there is a... Uh, an election model which supporters direct have have developed and which they like um, individual trusts to follow we are able to take those um, that that model and adapt it to suit our particular position but basically all trusts follow the the supporters direct model um, so that you know these uh, are well established um, ways of holding the the election uh, on an annual basis. Yeah. Now, uh, John Waring is not standing uh, for the committee, but uh, he's uh, been helping out with the organisation of uh, the elections. And the uh, election officer, I believe, is Jack Straw's son, Will. Is that uh, correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. And ev yeah. everything's gone pretty smoothly, has it? Uh, yes, it seems to be going perfectly well. Um, we've heard one or two people saying that they, when they clicked the link to go to the website to vote, that they've been having some difficulty. Uh, but that has always turned out to be that um, either they 
forgotten their password, for example, or put the password in incorrectly. So, you know, some sort of, you know, fairly normal everyday thing. Um, I don't know how many ballots have been cast so far, and I wouldn't expect to in actual fact. Um, and, uh, uh, but it does all appear to be going very smoothly. And so we just wait, you know, until the 15th of May to discover, you know, who the elected committee will be. Right. It's probably, you know, worth saying, um, certainly for myself, the fact that I haven't stood for committee is, is purely down to work commitments. And I fully expect to be giving as much uh, commitment and effort to the trust in the next 12 months as I have in the last. And um, uh, but I just didn't feel that I could you know, stand for election and then suddenly find that I disappeared for two or three months of the year. Mm, yeah. Now, there are any number of uh, positions uh, within the trust uh, that are not elected. And uh, your position, your, your current position on the steering committee is one of those, I, I understand. Yes, that's right. I mean, my, my title, if you like, uh, for want of a better description, is Supporters Direct Officer. It's actually turned out that there are so many different aspects of running the trust that all sorts of different people have had to have contact with Supporters Direct because it, it just became a situation where people were coming to me with a question, I was asking Supporters Direct, taking the answer back, and then I was getting asked another question on the basis of that answer. Um so we do have uh, quite a number of people who are in regular contact with, with different people at Supporters Direct. Um, and I'm tending to take on bits and pieces of work where I feel that the skills that I have um, are, are, are relevant to, to what we want to do. Um, so, for example, uh, we entered the Red Rose Awards this year and uh, you know one of my responsibilities was to write the entry and write the presentations and so on for that. Um, and I'm currently in the process of uh, preparing a presentation which we're hoping to send um, to India to explain more fully to Mrs Desai um, how supporters' trusts work in general um, and to use a couple of other clubs, uh, Swansea being one and probably Arsenal the other, um, to identify what it is they have done with their club and what is the importance of the trust um, to that individual club, and then also to you know to talk to her more about how we see Rovers Trust going forward. Yeah, uh, you've been down to the uh, Swan Trust, I believe. Oh yes, that's right. I had a meeting with a couple of guys from the Swans Trust on uh, Thursday night. Um, uh, Nigel Hamer and uh, Hugh. Um, Hugh is actually the director from the trust who is on the board at Swansea. Um, I was really pleased to meet a couple of uh, uh, ordinary everyday people who um, were just, you know, clearly very passionate about Swansea. Um, and they had both been involved right from the very beginning. Um, you know, literally out on the streets with with buckets collecting money for for, for the trust and for the club. Um, and it, it, it's the first time that I've had the opportunity to sit down and talk with other with people from another trust. Um, and I found it very interesting that we actually all have exactly the same aims and objectives. We maybe had to go about them in a different way. And I think the situation that each club finds itself in 
determines which direction you will take. But whatever route it is, we all keep coming back to the same place. And that is that the football club belongs to the fans and belongs to the community. And the other thing that was also clear to me, uh, which shows how different the Swans Trust position was to, to ours. When Swansea went broke, I think they were in the fourth division. All that the Swans Trust had to raise was a quarter of a million pounds. Um, and they found, you know, they approached a number of local businessmen and they basically said, well, the first five to come up with £50,000 each and you're in, um, you know, which is a very different situation from the one that we find ourselves in down at Ewood. Yeah. Now, you've um, seen this week that Portsmouth Supporters Trust has uh, taken over uh, ownership of Portsmouth Football Club. Um, the current plight of the Rovers is such that so every possibility that we, you know we could see a, a, a change of owners in the coming months. Are the uh, Rovers Trust ready to take over? Because we we, we keep hearing, uh, we've heard in the past from uh, both Wayne Wilde and Oz Jones that uh, the structure is all in place, they're ready. Uh, if if something happens in the next couple of weeks, uh, how, how, how do you see it uh, um, from a, a Rovers Trust perspective? Um, recently we've restructured the way that we work within um, the steering group and this is a structure I think that we'll use going forward once the committee is elected Uh, and we've identified four key areas of responsibility within the trust and those areas have been divided so that uh, Oz is taking control of two of them and Wayne is taking control of, of two of them. One major area of this, of, of the whole thing, of the workings of the trust, is that legally and constitutionally we are set up and we are ready to go. But it, a lot more than that is needed, and we have been working for some weeks on a business plan uh, so that, yes, you know, when, it, well, not when, sorry, if. Uh, the worst happens and Rovers were to go into administration, we will actually have a business plan prepared so that, you know, if the doors are locked, we can go and bang on them and say, well, you know, here we are. This is this is what we, we want to do. Here is the plan. Um, so, you know, we are we're very much working towards being as fully prepared for really any eventuality as we possibly can. Um, and all of this will will be documented. I mean, it, it won't simply be a plan we've all discussed, there will be a written document so that whatever happens, you know, should two or three key people be away on holiday, the information will be there so that anyone can, from the steering group or from the committee, can pick it up and start things moving if necessary. Yeah, good. So, yeah, May 15th, that's when the uh, uh, election results will be uh, announced. Uh, we'll then know the six members of the committee. And, uh, yeah, good luck with uh, getting things together, um, like you say, with uh, not only the structure, which seems to be in place, but uh, with the business plan, which um, is looking increasingly uh, more important as each day passes. Um, Cammy, do, do you have any comments? I think the Trust done a fantastic job in terms of raising awareness, um, not just on on what they're doing but on the plight of rovers 
um, in terms of what's been happening with the owners, etc. So they've done a fantastic job there. I think it's hugely positive that uh, Mr Desai has engaged with the trust in terms of uh, you know wanting more information about how trusts work and um, how you know they're structured, etc., and how they they can they can help run a football club. So I think that's a positive. Um, I mean, so so yeah, I mean, it's good that they're doing these open elections. I think that's the way forward. Um, I think it gives the trust a quite a lot of credibility uh, in the wider uh, fan base, uh, so that you know people can see that there's no you know jiggery pokery going on in terms of elections, etc. These are open, fair. You know, they're, they're giving every member uh, two or three different opportunities to um, to cast their vote. So, you know, if they can't do it online, they can email it. If they can't email it, they can come to, um, you know, Darwin you know, Football Club and, and do it in person. So so I think that's a huge positive and it's reassuring to, to hear that um, they've got a business plan together should um the worst happen and um, we, you know, go into administration or something in the next year or so or, you know, whenever. It's reassuring to, to hear that the trust is prepared for that kind of uh, situation. So, um, you know, I think the trust is going to become more and more prominent over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, uh, particularly if the on-off-the-field shenanigans continue. So... So yeah, I mean it's well done to them, uh, and it's it's great to see the developments that they that the trust have made over the last twelve months or so. Because you know about a year ago, I think there were lots of concerns in terms of the direction it was it was heading, and and you know the PR and the messages that were coming out they weren't weren't clear and weren't consistent. But uh, over the last year, they've made huge progress and 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 now you know the 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 well you know established organization uh, i think most of the fans um you know if they don't believe in the uh, viability but they do believe in the trust that they're genuine and they want to make uh, do the best for the club so so yeah um well done to yeah, well, that's very encouraging. That that last uh, couple of sentences, uh, Camille, um, that, that really is very encouraging to hear. That you know, it, maybe people don't think it can work financially, but we do hope that they can believe in in what we're trying to do and and believe that we're doing it with nothing other than uh, the best interests of of Rovers and the the fan base at heart. Um, I mean, and you mentioned you know the way things have changed over the last twelve months. Um, there's some quite interesting figures that you, you might like to, to, to hear and our listeners might like to hear. I mean, let's remember that the trust was officially launched on uh, November the 24th uh, of last year. So that's just under five months ago. Um, and up to that point, we couldn't actually have any members because we had, you know, that it was at the official launch that the things had to begin. Well, last week we moved significantly past the 1,000 fully paid up members mark. Now, some people may think that's a small figure. Um, To put it in context, uh, at the last time Arsenal Trust reported their figures, which was at the end of October of last year, they had uh, a membership of 
1038 and the Arsenal Trust has been in existence for 10 years. So in actual fact, in five months, we have gone past the membership that it's taken Arsenal 10 years to build up. Um, We have nearly 4,000 followers on Twitter. We're getting, roughly speaking, 5,000 unique visits to the website every month. Uh, We've got about 1,200, you know, Facebook likes. Um, So, you know, the message is getting out there. And I think people are coming to us more and more and more. Um, And, you know, we're now beginning to set ourselves some quite ambitious targets as regards membership by the end of the year, having seen the response that we've had from people in the last five months. I mean, those are... That's really, really good to hear. And I suspect your membership <laughs> figures will rise considerably once the season's finished. Um, I think a lot of fans who've become uh, disenfranchised with, with what Vinkies have done to the club, I think with the kind of stuff I expect to come out over the summer, I think more and more people will be, will be you know, going, joining up and... and becoming members so um, I think even your ambitious targets (laughs) I think you may well exceed them over the summer well it would be nice if we did Um, and there is no doubt that you know when things are going on at the club that the fans are unhappy with uh, like for example Appleton's sacking I mean we signed up over 250 members in a 48 hour period when Appleton was sacked um, so it does show that you know the support does react and look for a focus, uh, you know, at, at times when things are going badly at Ewood. Yep, that's true. I think, uh, as Cammy said and as uh, mentioned earlier, the next uh, few weeks and the close season will will see a great deal of uh, turbulence at the club. I believe the BRFC Action Group are pushing really, really hard now. Uh, to have all manner of things disclosed. And uh, there are various media outlets that are uh, just waiting to push the button on uh, on the various uh, behind-the-scenes uh, stuff. Uh, so um, I- I'm pretty certain that that will have a, a major impact on uh, the Rover Trust activities in-, in the coming weeks and months. I think many people have uh, have been put off joining the trust or getting involved in the trust uh, because they they have this uh, image that uh, the, the the trust would need to have uh, full control 100% controlling interest uh, in the club and that they would need millions and millions of pounds uh, not just to acquire the club but to keep it running but uh, i think uh, the complicated nature of of the situation will become clearer over the next few weeks and uh, the possible role of the trust uh, as being a partner going forward uh, I, I think that'll uh, that'll be uh, uh, more important uh, as as we move forward yeah i i think you're quite right there uh, when um the key thing as regards to the finances that is that in actual fact nobody knows how much money is going to be needed 
because until uh, and that doesn't matter whether you're the trusts seneca or you know whoever until you actually get the opportunity to to make an offer for the club to find out what the value of the club is and to have a look at the books we, we nobody can say how much money is going to be needed um so i don't feel that fans should be looking at it and say oh well the trust is going to need to raise 20 million 30 million or whatever just to buy the club we don't know what the number is, and we won't know what the number is until the club is actually for sale. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Do you have any uh, closing comments on the trust, uh, Paul? Well, just the last thing I'd like to say is that um, a lot of our success over the last four to five months in recruiting people um, has been through the social media activities. And that's been very necessary to approach it from that point of view because we, we had to reach out to as large a number of people as possible in the, the most efficient way possible. Um, but we're very aware that, you know, there is a large proportion of the fan base that, that doesn't use social media and the Internet uh, in the way that, you know, many of us do. So we will be in the mall next Saturday uh, before the Crystal Palace game. Um, there'll be four or five of us there handing out leaflets, uh, a new leaflet we've just had designed, uh, in fact, um, and talking to local people and explaining to them, you know, what the Rovers Trust is and, and hoping to sign up a few new members at the same time. And I think you'll see more and more activities like this from the Trust where we will be out and about uh, looking to meet people face to face and explain what we're up to. Good. That's good to hear. Well, good luck with uh, with that. Good luck to uh, all the members of the the steering group, um, the uh, uh, co-chairs as well, uh, for the for the coming weeks and months. Um, Crystal Palace next Saturday. That follows on from uh, Tuesday's game uh, away to Millwall. Uh, we could by then be safe. Three points at uh, at either of those games could could well see us safe. Um, I think. Uh, as long as we can get a point at Millwall, at least a point against Palace, I think we've got a decent chance of staying up. But, uh, good luck to the lads on the pitch. I'd just like to uh, round off uh, today's uh, podcast uh, with a, a tribute to one of our members who passed away. Um, nearly two weeks ago now, uh, April 9th, uh, early in the morning, I believe. Uh, Kelbo, one of our members, uh, Kelvin Metcalf in real life, passed away, had a heart attack, I believe, and uh, leaves behind uh, uh, children and a wife. And his, his son, Ben, uh, has come on to the board uh, to uh, let us know what, uh, what, has, what has happened to his father. And uh, there's been a, a thread up on, on the message board um, as, a, as a tribute to Kelbo. Um, I didn't know Kelbo personally, but we exchanged PMs, uh, as it would appear did very many of our members. And uh, Kelbo wrote uh, some, some things for us uh, uh, previous season for, uh, for the youth team. Uh, he used to uh, turn up for all manner of matches, whether it's uh, reserves or youth matches, as well as first team. And he was also uh, a coach locally. He used to 
uh, coach uh, up and down uh, the uh, East Lancashire corridor. He had uh, uh, friends uh, throughout uh, East Lancashire. Um, anybody who followed the board would would know that uh, he didn't have a bad word to say about anyone, including even uh, our neighbours, close neighbours over in Burnley. Um, he was absolutely fantastic uh, in terms of his contributions, uh, but more more than that, in in terms of his uh, his overall uh, attitude and uh, uh, his uh, demeanour on the board. Um, absolute uh, pleasure to read his contributions uh, throughout the time that I've been on the board. And uh, the uh, picture of him that comes through uh, is one of a, a very uh, loving and caring family man and uh, community man uh, was very much liked by one and all. So it's very, very sad that uh, uh, we've lost uh, a member of the BRFCS community uh, and also uh, a fellow rover, uh, not to mention a, a friend for so many, um, and uh, a, a father and husband uh, for uh, for his uh, family. Um, Paul and Cammy, uh, you've uh, you obviously uh, know Kelbo uh, from the board. Um, yeah, do do you have any uh, uh, words to add? Um, yeah, I've had. A number of conversations with with Kelvin. Um, I never met him, but um, like you, I've had like PMs and, and emails um, over the last year or so where I've got to know him uh, very well. Um, and you know, just to reiterate what you said, uh, when the very very passionate Rovers fan cared deeply about the club and what was going on. And um, you know, like all of us, was frustrated at times. But it, you know, he, he loved the club. But more than that, he was a community man. And you know, as a coach, um, you know, he put in so much uh, time uh, in giving young people a chance to 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 play the game and learn about the game. And I was reading the Lancashire Telegraph uh, article where some of the 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 players he'd coached, um, you know, were saying how they'd miss him and how much they owed him in terms of their development as players. So uh, on that side of things, you know, absolutely fantastic. Um, and you know, he he leaves his own legacy behind uh, with with all these the coaching he'd done and all these community activities. But uh, more than that, you know, he, he comes across as a very caring man. Uh, you know, devoted to his family, um, you know, his, his wife and kids, and you know, um, while we feel loss for for losing one of our members and fellow Rovers fan, but you know, they've lost a, a, a husband and a father, so all uh, thoughts and prayers with them. You know, at what must be a very very difficult time. Uh, yes, and it, it, when if I could just well obviously echo the thoughts from yourself and from Cammy. Um, I didn't know Kelbo at all, other than you know having read his many excellent posts on the uh, BRFCS message board. Um, I've actually learnt more about him over the last couple of weeks than you know over the previous maybe five or six years and he was clearly a, a very well respected and very valuable member of the community 
both the footballing community and the general local community. Uh, and it's a very sad loss to his family and, and to everybody that he knew. Yes, uh, our sympathy uh, goes out to uh, uh, the uh, family and friends of uh, Kelbel, Kelvin Metcalf. Well, that's all we have time for today. And uh, thanks ever so much for joining us as usual. Cami, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, uh, Paul. Okay, yes. Good to uh, speak to you both again. And uh, it's been some time, but hopefully it won't be so long uh, for before the next one. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you uh, both once again. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening in. Um, hopefully it won't be quite so long before the next podcast, uh, as it has been uh, since the last one. At uh, wherever you are in the world, thank you for listening and do take care. Thank you.